0: Good morning. Um, we are in the midst of a series called uh, One Another, and today we're going to be talking about how we are to build up one another as God builds us up. Let me ask you to stand, and I'll read today's uh, scripture, and then we'll dive right in. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are, the mem- for we are members one of another. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up your name. Lord, you are a God who is building your church. You are building us up. And Lord, you're building your church all over the world. And we, Lord, we pray for churches in India and South America where COVID is ravaging those places. And Lord, as we hear news of it, even as we feel like we're coming out of it, Lord, we long to see um, healing and hope in those places as well. So we pray for the church in India and in South America, Lord, that you would build them up, and that you would give them the courage and strength to be the church in such a time as they face um, again just deaths and and infections and Lord as as we um, live out our lives here in Durham in the Triangle area Lord give us the courage to be um, the body of Christ and to be the fragrant fragrance of hope to a world in need in Jesus name Amen Please be seated. So you probably heard me say this, but I grew up in Hong Kong when it was still a British colony, and um, you may not know this, but I went to English-speaking British schools from kindergarten through high school. And all my teachers in Hong Kong were uh, white British teachers who were uh, experiencing the benefits of uh, dying but far-reaching British colonial powers, and those were the the teachers who influenced me throughout my my, uh, early years and and even uh, I even went to predominantly uh, boys' British boarding school for my last two years of high school before I came to the States for college. University of Maryland, go Terps, any Terps in the house. Um, but again, my formative years, I was going to British schools under British teachers. I am the product of the British education system. Now, I didn't go to boarding school until I was 16, and, and most of the boys that I went to boarding school with had gone to boarding school since age 11 or age 13. Those were kind of common times to start boarding school. And so they left the nurture and care of their parents at age 11 or age 13 at a young age and then were placed into the, the nurture and care of an institution, the boarding school. And these boys would be placed in boarding houses, at least at my school, about 60 boys. Um, and there'll be one housemaster and one housematron who would take care of 60 boys. Imagine if that was your job. And the older boys had authority over the younger boys and responsibility towards the younger boys, which is really just means it's a recipe uh, ripe for bullying. What happens in the dorm at night stays in the dorm at night. And so, as a 16 year old entering boarding school, I actually had to leave behind a lot of freedom that my parents had given me to a boarding school that had to be pretty strict, because that's really the only way to manage 60 boys, is just to give them a bunch of rules to follow. And so my experience in boarding school showed me, more clearly than ever, the goal of British education system, to create detached, self-sufficient men who could rule anywhere in the British colonial, wherever it, wherever it reached. Now, America, which is where we're at, is almost 250 years removed from its British colonial beginnings, but the spirit of self-sufficiency certainly continues even till today in this country, and America's the land of iconic heroes like John Wayne, Rambo from my day, and Captain America making a comeback these days, and And they're all really, right, lonely, self-sufficient heroes who save the world pretty much single-handedly. And and maybe we're making a turn towards community superheroes. Our superheroes are now working in teams. The Avengers, Guardian of the Galaxies, Justice League. But let's be honest, right, that self-sufficiency still runs really deep in all of us. Ask your average UNC, Duke, Central student as they go through finals whether they feel like they have to handle things alone and not ask for any help. I think the resounding answer from them is going to be, yes, I very much feel alone in what I have to do. And this self-sufficiency is so ingrained into us that it really affects the way we understand the Bible and the way we relate to God. No matter how much we hear that the good news of Jesus is unconditional, received by grace through faith alone, we keep returning back, to thinking that we have to be self-sufficient, that we have to be good on our own, in our own power. And we forget that by faith in Christ, our God always walks with us and that dwells and he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And our self-sufficiency leads us to forget that all sin is relational, that our sin always grieves the Holy Spirit within us and tears down the people around us. We are not alone. We are very much alone connected to one another. And we're going to hear today this in the main point of today's passage that we are to build up one another as God builds us up. Now I need to give you a little bit of context in order to understand it. Ephesians is this beautiful letter by the Apostle Paul that's really about the church and the work that God is doing in the church. And chapters 1 through 3, which we've not read, is about Christ's power at work in the church to bring glory to God and to reconcile humanity to God and redeem all of creation. And within Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we get this very cherished verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, about how we're saved by grace through faith alone. And it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You may have memorized this. This It's one of those verses that we're supposed to memorize as Christians. And so we could, we could say, it's a bit of an oversimplification, that chapters 1 through 3 could be, could be described as being about justification and our uh, justification before God and our adoption by God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, asks this, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight for the sake of the righteousness of Christ alone, which is credited to us and received by faith alone. And we hear in these words just this richness of this message again. God's grace to us is unconditional. We receive it by grace. He credits Christ's righteousness to us as our righteousness. We can stand before God and be accepted and loved because of this justifying work of God. Now, chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians takes a turn, and we hear it very clearly in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, bearing with one another in love. So Paul is making this pivot, right? And this Greek word worthy is axios. There's this balance we're supposed to have between understanding the work that God is doing, and then chapters 4 through 6, how we're to participate in that work, and uh, we, we could, again, it's a bit of a gross oversimplification. We could summarize chapters four through six that uh, God is describing our sanctification. And again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35 asks, What is sanctification? And the answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed throughout in the image of God and enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. And really, the, the words contained in this very much is described in our verses today, our passage today. And we're going to see what it means to build up others by putting off the old self, putting on the new self, language, biblical language for sanctification. And we see that in verses 22 through 24, which we didn't read today. But what we do here in today's verses is this. Paul gets even more specific about the work that God is doing in transforming his people, and therefore how we can participate in God's work of transformation. Paul's giving feet to the call to put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, the old self, if you're not familiar, is biblical language for what is associated with our sinful nature that has died with Christ through faith in Christ. Um, In Christ's death on the cross. And the new self is what is associated with our nature as new creations through faith in Christ's resurrection. Now, often in our lives, it's not enough just to be told to love and to be good. We have to be given a specific vision for what love and goodness looks like, and the Bible is full of examples of that. And again, we're given that here, specific examples of what this new self looks like, what it means to put on the new self. And really, verses 25 through 32 is a list of examples of how we're to put off the old self and put on the new self. And let me just boil it down really crashly, because sometimes it sounds confusing when it's all wrapped up with lots of other language, but let me put it really crassly, uh, this list of examples. It's saying, don't lie, rather speak truth to others. Don't sin in your anger. Rather, seek reconciliation with others. Don't steal. Rather, work and share with others. Don't tear down. Rather, build up others. And really, I'm I'm using the building up metaphor as being descriptive of all of these examples. Don't dwell in bitterness. Rather, seek to be tender and forgiving towards one another. So we can see very clearly from these examples of opposites what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. There are these do's and don'ts that are being made very clear to us by Paul. Now, we can certainly all pay attention to all of these examples in our own lives, but I find the instructions given to the thief as being particularly enlightening as we think about building up one another. Now, these instructions to the thief weren't given to a church full of professional thieves. That's not why it's included. The words were most likely included because there were many in the church whose vocation were being servants under employers. And these servants had many opportunities to steal. And let me illustrate that um, with an example from, again, my own upbringing. So growing up in Hong Kong, it's very common for middle class and up to have live-in helpers. And these live-in helpers were mostly from the Philippines or or from Indonesia. And they could make more money as live-in helpers in Hong Kong than perhaps a professional job back in their home country. Now, a live-in helper would cook, clean, buy groceries, take care of the kids or take care of the elderly within the home. And they would get paid around $500 a month. Now, if you have children and you're paying childcare right now, you know how much of a steal $500 a month is for just nannying your kids, forget all the other stuff I I just listed. Now with a different standard of living between Hong Kong and the Philippines and Indonesia, $500 a month actually goes a long way. So they'll send that money home to their family and that could provide for their family uh, quite well, and which is why it works, so to speak. But it's also a really broken system. Growing up, I had a helper who had a master's in engineering and she couldn't get a job in engineering. Um, back home. And even if she did, it might not even pay as well as being a live-in helper in Hong Kong. And so it was just crazy to me at this young age. I'm like, here's this engineer who cleans our house. And it, it felt so wrong growing up in that system. Now, the reality is that there, there, there are employers who treat their helpers very poorly um, with harsh treatment and um, overwork. And there will also be helpers who would steal from their employers because they're living there 24-7, and they feel that income disparity so greatly, and it just is tempting. It'd be easy just to take a little something that's laying around that you think your employer would not notice. Now, I want to come back to what Paul says here in verse 28. And remember, the, the context is not talking about professional thieves here. We're talking about servants working in homes. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I want you to notice the progression for this person. The servant should stop stealing, stop doing that wrong thing. They should do honest work with their own hands. It's the positive aspect. Do this, do honest work, but it doesn't stop there. The progression goes on. They should also, instead of taking from others, they should share with others who are in need. Now, Jesus is not just trying to deal with our external behavior. He's trying to deal with sin at the heart level as well. Through these words, Jesus is challenging the servant's entitled attitude towards stealing because of their need, and he's calling for the servant of a heart to share And I'm sure given the context of stealing, uh, the, the, the servant would feel like, I feel quite justified in taking from this very rich family. But Paul says, take your eyes up yourself and cast your eyes upon those who are in need. Now, I can think of many Christian Filipino helpers at my church in Hong Kong uh, when I was there, who, who knew, obviously, they were relatively financially poor and needy compared to those that they worked for, but they saw with great clarity the greater spiritual neediness in their rich Hong Kong employers, and they would seek to serve the Lord by serving their employers well and seeking to share the gospel with them through their words, through their actions. And this progression that we see about the thief here reminds us that we all have a particular pattern of sin in our lives. And one of the ways in which we are put on the new self is by moving in the opposite direction of the sin pattern in our story. We build up one another by moving in the opposite direction from the sin pattern in our story. So let me ask you just a few application questions. What is something that you have struggled with pretty consistently in your story, in your life? It's probably not stealing, but if it is, okay, that's something the Lord wants to work on too. But what is it for you, and what does it mean to move in the opposite direction of that sin pattern in your story? A friend once told me that he realized he had a tendency to overwork in response to grief that he was feeling, Now, it's obviously not a sin to work. We're actually commanded to work, and that work is good. But there can be harmful consequences, surely, for overworking in response to grief instead of grieving. For instance, overworking can lead to um, not dealing with that grief. It can lead to a decrease in intimacy with God by not dealing with that grief with God. It can lead to lost time in relationship with God those in your life, family, friends, as you overwork. And this friend realized he needed to move in the opposite direction of overworking, to work less and to deal appropriately with the grief that he was feeling. Another example, I've also walked alongside young adults who've just experienced lots of relationship problems as they dated. There are some that I've uh, walked alongside and counsel who just date person after person after person, and their relationships end just kind of in a similar fashion each time. And I, at some point, just have to as graciously and kindly as possible say to them, you are a serial dater. You need to stop dating for a season. It's fasting, essentially. And those are not easy words for a serial dater to hear. It's usually a shock to the system to imagine being alone for more than just a few months. And it's not that stopping dating automatically is going to transform that serial dater, but dating, of course, again, is, is, is like working is not inherently sinful. They're good things that when um, abused will enslave us. And stopping dating for the serial dater is just giving them some space to consider how the Lord might work on things in their heart that need to be worked on. It gives them the ability to identify things that the Lord may want to change and maybe explore even traumatic events in their life that is leading to problems in their relationships, things that they need healing from, space to invite the Holy Spirit to be at work in them while they cooperate with the Holy Spirit in very hard choices. And let me tell you, it takes great courage for the serial dater to stop dating for a season. And it's been so encouraging to me when I've seen people make that choice when they needed to, when the Lord convicted them to do so, to see the change in character and in their relationship with God as they did so, to see the Holy Spirit at work in them to transform them. And that's the same for us. Whatever is our sin pattern and, the, and our need to move in the opposite direction from that sin pattern, the Holy Spirit is at work to transform us as we participate with the Holy Spirit in the most stubborn aspects of our lives. We all have something that enslaves us to some extent and keeps us from building up others around us. And we all desire freedom in our lives in such a way that we can love others better, and we know the ways in which we fail to do so. And maybe something inherently wrong like stealing, or it may be something good like work, and dating that somehow got twisted along the way. This is the brokenness that God too wants to be at work in us to transform us. So let me ask you a few questions to drive this home. What is the sin pattern in your story that you need to move in the opposite direction of? How have you seen it hurt the people in your life? What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to start doing that's the opposite of that? How could that enable you to build up others more? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to identify and work on a heart level change what is needed to be worked on? When you can begin to answer those questions and you begin to see a vision for your life of what meaningful repentance looks like and how it may begin to change the way you love and relate to the people around you. Repentance for all of us is moving in the opposite direction from our sin patterns and moving towards building up others. So I've talked at length now about building up one another as we saw from Paul's examples. But I said in the beginning, it is as God builds us up. Build up one another as God builds us up. We must, must remember that we are not alone in our journey of sanctification, in our journey of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. By now, after hearing all of these very practical applications, you have probably in your mind gone back to, I must do this in my own strength. You can't. You can't do it in your own strength. We must continue to repent of our self-sufficiency, knowing that Jesus died for that too. He made us to be in relationship with Him and to be dependent upon Him. He made us to be in relationship with one another and to be dependent on one another. And we cannot build up one another if we are self-sufficient. We cannot um, build up one another if we don't think we actually need each other. And we And if we think we don't need God to be at work to build us up, then we also can't build up others. And the Apostle Paul knows this. This is why throughout this list of specific examples of putting off and putting on, he gives these little reminders of things he had talked about in chapters 1 through 3, reminders of what God has done and is doing right now. So let me give you the reminders here Chapter 4, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, for we are members one of another. Verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, five verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us the power for our change, our sanctification, our building up of one another is God's building up of us through the gospel. We can build one another up because God is building us up. God is the one who is continually at work to renew us. Ephesians is not a book about chapters one through three. Look at what God has done. Chapters four through six, now you go do it. It's a book about how God is continually at work to renew us. And so these little reminders that I just read, they tell us this. God is the one who is renewing us in the spirit of our minds. God is the one who is restoring us to the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. God is the one who has made us members of one to another. God is the one who has ensured our redemption through the Holy Spirit in us. God is the one who has forgiven our wrongs through Christ's suffering on the cross. God is the one who loved us first through Christ's death on the cross to give us new life through the resurrection. God is the one building us up. I want to end just with really a sweet little conclusion that was an idea that my wife gave me. I don't know if you have memories as a child baking with mom or dad, or perhaps you have children yourself and and you bake with your kids. My wife likes to bake chocolate chip cookies and brownies with our boys. Now I want you to think when your, your kids are young or perhaps when you were really young and you were helping your parents bake. Now when the kids are really young and they help, they really aren't a lot of help, let's be honest. You could do it better and quicker without them right? They might pour some ingredients in. They might stir the mix a little bit. They might put the tray, the baking tray, in the oven. They might also fight with each other along the way. And they're definitely going to make a huge mess, right, as they do it. But as the parent, you're very much in control making sure the right steps happen in the right order, supervising everything, teaching and guiding your kids as they bake with you, as they participate with you. The work the kids do is real, but without the parents' guidance and work, the cookies are not going to get baked or they're not going to taste very good. But the connection and enjoyment with your kids is also very real today's passage taught us that we're to build up one another as God builds us up. And I wonder if you would think of this work of building, building up one another as baking cookies with God and your siblings. Your part is real, but God's part is more real. And the enjoyment of God and one another along the way is what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We are not alone. Your promise to us is, Lord, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are always with us. We don't always feel that, Lord. We always seem to go back to this attitude of, I have to do it in my own strength. I'm alone. I have to be self-sufficient. There's no one I can trust. But, Lord, you call us to trust you and to trust one another. And as we do so, Lord, we can be a part of this beautiful work of building up one another even as you build us up. Help us, Lord, in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen.